We are talking about the overflowing life as we explore what this looks like through this theme of overflow. And as I um, am getting to share this weekend, I just want to propose something that um, I'd like us to consider and hopefully we'll be able to unpack. But uh, I'd like to propose that Jesus' generosity toward us, it's meant to become a wellspring of generosity through us. Um, that if, if, by the way, if we ever give Jesus an honest look, one thing we can all agree on, Jesus, he was a giver. He was a man of generosity. Generosity of spirit, generosity of word, and certainly generosity of action. And that wasn't meant only to remain with those who received him. Although there might be seasons where that is where we're at and that's okay. But ultimately what God longs for, what I'm proposing, is that whatever generosity we receive from him, it's meant to become a wellspring, uh, a fountain, as it were, flowing through us. About he, he does this, he desires this for us. All the while refusing to override our own ability to choose. And so he gives us the privilege or the responsibility of deciding, if I could use this imagery, of how far we're going to open up the spigot, of how truly we're going to let him flow through us. And that, that, that's really our decision to make. But this, this whole idea that God wants us to become ones who not just receive his generosity, but also give it away um, this whole idea is, I think, it's captured pretty effectively in the Gospel of Luke. In this one account, this man, who some of us may be more familiar with than others, his name is Zacchaeus. And if you open up your handout, we'll go ahead and take a look at this passage together. And Luke opens up in Luke 19, this account in verse 1. And we'll just read this together. He says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. He being Jesus, was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And then Luke gives us a little bit of information about this man. Tells us his occupation and then his status. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Out of everything Luke decided to utilize to give us an idea of what this man was like, he chose to say, oh, this is what he did. He was a chief tax collector. And by the way, he was rich. I mean, he was wealthy. And this is Luke's way of giving us a picture into what was about to happen. He wanted us to understand a couple of things. A couple of things that maybe those who were reading in the first century would have understood readily, which is that Zacchaeus was a man um, who was in Jericho, which was about two or three miles outside of Jerusalem. And it was Luke's way, by the way, of telling us that Jesus was getting closer to his ultimate destination, which was Jerusalem, which is where he would make the ultimate sacrifice of giving his own life. But he's making his way there, and he's passing through Jericho, and there's this man named Zacchaeus. Now, first of all, nobody, uh, let's put it this way, tax collectors are rarely popular, okay? They're not going to win the popularity contest, all right? They're, they're not people who are like highly, yeah, tax collectors, right? That, that doesn't really happen. But Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was in a, um, in a class all his own. Because Zacchaeus wasn't just disliked by people. We could go as far as to say he was despised by people. And the reason this is the case is because we have to understand kind of how Rome set things up. See, the Roman Empire, uh, 
exacted taxes from the different provinces they had conquered. It is the way they sustained their capital and their government. And the way they would do this is these different provinces would collect taxes, but they, the government itself, wouldn't be the ones collecting. They, in the hopes of dodging the vitriol most people have towards such a crowd, ended up giving this duty over to noblemen and members of the royal court, knights of the Roman Empire. And they themselves didn't collect either. What they would do is they would sell the rights to collect from different provinces to the highest bidder. So that the royal family and the, the government would be, in a, in a way, they wouldn't be the ones, if there was an insurrection, if there was an uprising, they wouldn't be the target. It would be whoever was the highest bidder. It was their strategy. The highest bidder would end up hiring locals from each province. Judea was in the province of Assyria, which is where Jericho was. And they would hire locals, and these locals oftentimes would be seen as betrayers of their own people. Because these locals would end up representing ultimately the Roman Empire, and they would end up getting the full backing of the empire. And they would have a certain amount of quota they needed to measure up to, but financially. But they also had the ability to utilize that power to enrich themselves however many times they would like. And so Zacchaeus was a chief of tax collectors. He oversaw many. And just so we have an idea of kind of, and I know this is kind of a, a deep dive into a little bit of background, but we, I think it's good for us to understand the type of person Luke is talking about, is to understand the situation in which he found himself in. See, the taxes were onerous. They were, they were um, heavy to carry. In fact, we're told there was, an, there was an annual income tax. There was um, an import and export tax on individuals. There was crop taxes, grain taxes, wine taxes, fruit taxes, olive oil taxes. There was a sales tax, a property tax, an emergency tax. There was a tax for the road and a tax for the military. And on and on it went. In fact, the group of collectors, the tax collectors, they were known as a cabal because they were, they were, historians have compared them to our idea of what a mafia looks like. Because they had the muscle of the Roman Empire to extort, to not just ask what, what was required, but to force many times over. And it there were, there were tales told of tax collectors just sitting on the road of travelers. And they would sit there and they would, because of their office, they would be able to stop a traveler, force them to come out and just unload everything they were carrying. And on whatever they were carrying, they would take a portion. And the traveler had no power to do anything other than comply for the fear of Rome. So Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a man that Luke is giving us a picture of a man who made a calculated decision. He decided to burn all the bridges of his community socially 
so that he can become rich. He decided to trade relationship for wealth. To say that he was a man disliked is an understatement. To say that he was a man despised by his own community would be closer to reality. This man Zacchaeus is a man, we're told in verse 3, that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way, he being Jesus. And any time that Jesus, throughout his entire ministry, if Zacchaeus was a man despised by people, Jesus was a man revered by people. And wherever Jesus went, people heard about him. He was an attractive person, not just in uh, his communication, but in the way he represented God and others. No matter what walk of life, no matter what place they came from, they felt comfortable drawing near to Jesus. And so crowds would start to develop wherever he went. This was something that would happen throughout his entire ministry. And we're told that this was no different. He's walking through Jericho. People start to hear Jesus is here. They start to tell their neighbors and their friends. A crowd starts to assemble. Zacchaeus is one of those people wanting to hear about this Jesus that his reputation preceded him and so he comes near now Luke tells us he's a man of small stature some have said yes he was no no doubt he was short but some have speculated as to whether or not that was also a description describing so much more about Zacchaeus and perhaps it described not just his height but also the size of his character, and maybe the size of his standing in the community. Because if he was a man of wealth who was also respected, no doubt there would be a desire for people to make room for him. You want to see Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah. Come on. Zacchaeus, yeah. I mean, come on. You're an influential member of our community. Go see Jesus. But exactly the opposite happens. It's almost like people close ranks and say, no, there's a wall right here. Um, you go to the back. You want to see Jesus? Uh, too bad. You know? You're a tax collector. And so what does Zacchaeus do? Zacchaeus runs ahead of the crowd, ends up making his way over. And what does he do? We're told that he climbed up into a sycamore tree. If you could think about this, a wealthy man climbing a tree to see Jesus. Verse 5 tells us that when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him with joy, joyfully. Now, we might not know that in Eastern, Near Eastern, uh, ancient Near East culture, to invite oneself over to somebody else's house is not rude, as maybe it would be interpreted today. I'm going to your house to eat today, you know? <laughs> Oh, thanks. Uh, I didn't have plans, right? So it's like Jesus is actually doing something that is honoring Zacchaeus. Because especially a man of his standing to say Zacchaeus. See, this was, a, a, this was meant to be emphasized as a, a, an amazing statement. And Jesus is walking down. Zacchaeus goes up ahead. He goes, climbs a tree. He goes to see Jesus. Jesus looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, yes, at your house, I'm going to have a meal. And the significance of a meal in that culture, in that time in history, well, it was a statement. 
And it was a bold statement. It wasn't a privately secret state held statement. It was a statement that Jesus was essentially making, not about himself, but about Zacchaeus. And this man who was despised, who was marginalized, who was seen as a betrayer of his own people, Jesus ends up making the statement, I deem you worthy of relating to. I deem you worthy of being the host. And he leverages out, Jesus leverages out all the reverence and all the respect and everything that people gave him. And he uses it to stamp something on Zacchaeus. Now, because of that, we understand now why he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. He did not expect anything even close to that. He says, you coming over my house? You honoring me with your presence? Yeah. See, the statement wasn't lost on Zacchaeus, but it also wasn't lost on anyone else. Everyone understood exactly what Jesus was doing, and they didn't like the implications. Because we're told, verse 7, that when they saw it, they all grumbled. All grumbled. He's gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. You get the sense people are walking with Jesus. This is him, the one many have spoken of, the miracle worker. This is him. And then they're walking with him, and they see the despised man in the tree, and then they hear Jesus call him by name, and then he comes down, and they go and they disappear into his home, and there's the crowd. What? He, he went with him? Does he, does he not know? He's a sinner. Now, that word, it wasn't meant as a compliment. Like that, it was a grumble, right? It was like, uh, how dare he? It was an insult. It was an accusation. And it was an accusation that was leveled against Jesus throughout his entire ministry. Time and time again, people used it to undermine his authority. And it was leveled against him to undermine his spiritual weight. If he was a man that he pretends to be, is what they would say. Clearly he would know. You don't, you don't mix with that crowd. If he was a man that we think he is. <laughs> There's no way he is that. He is not a man of weight and authority and spiritual understanding. That, that's what that accusation was meant to do. It was meant to undermine his reputation, which, by the way, that is why anyone who had any kind of spiritual office in that culture was very, very weary of hanging out with the wrong crowd. To do so would be to torpedo one's own reputation and to lose credibility with a wider audience. And yet Jesus... Jesus uh, treated that culture status quo cavalierly. And he would do this constantly. And the reason this was such an effective accusation is because it, it may not be effective today in our city, in our time in history. But it'd be, it'd be good for us to understand in that part of the world, in that time in history, See, to do that, you know why? Because the society they operated within had certain expectations of how one was to relate to another. And if there was somebody who was outcasted from the community and they wanted back into the community, here, essentially, to oversimplify it, 
is to essentially say that person needed to demonstrate changed behavior first. Then relationship could happen. And Jesus, he violated that constantly. Now, this is what Jesus and Jesus alone was able to do. He would relate first. And you know what he wouldn't do? Condone the behavior. He had an amazing way of being able to relate with people who were living in a way that we would call uh, not God-centered. Scriptures call that ungodly. But he had a way of communicating and approaching and being approached in such a way, all the while not condoning, not giving a pass to what was happening. And the result would be a God-oriented way of life. That Jesus would say, relationship first, godliness second. This is what he did. And this way of living is, is what made Jesus just amazingly attractive to a wide variety of people. What confounded those who were used to living with a certain religious discipline and regimen and at the same time surprised pleasantly those who were used to being outcasted and marginalized. He, he was able to walk this line and... This manner of being is what, if I don't know how else to put it, but anyone who interacted with Jesus couldn't help but being deeply affected by the man. Even those who walked away from Jesus walked away without, how do I say, they were still impacted by the words he shared. And, and this, this interaction was no different. In fact, Zacchaeus, ends up having this meal because he receives him. And as the crowd is grumbling outside, we are not told, Luke doesn't give us an idea of what happened in the conversation, but what we do know is that a meal was had. And Jesus is having this interaction with Zacchaeus, and they're having a conversation in which either Jesus became the culminating point or addressed certain things that were already happening within Zacchaeus. It is why he was seeking Jesus to begin with. And in this conversation, oh, to be a fly on the wall of that conversation. Something happened to Zacchaeus. Something erupted. And at the end of this meal and this conversation, while the crowd is outside, stunned and grumbling and upset that Jesus would dare to do such a thing, we're told in verse 8, and look at this radical change. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Half of my goods I give to the poor. Half of my goods. I'm giving it away. And and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. If I've defrauded anyone. That that if is a rhetorical one, by the way. It's better to be reading it as, to those whom I have defrauded, I will restore four times what I've taken. Which in itself was well beyond what the Jewish law asked of anybody who defrauded their neighbor. Zacchaeus ends up standing out of this meal, and he says, Lord, you get sense, I I hear you. Half of what I own, I'm giving it away. The general, you know, here's, here's what Zacchaeus steps into. You know what he steps into? He steps into this place 
of recognizing his faith isn't something to be privately held without impact on everything else in life. No, what Zacchaeus is stating is my faith is altering how I live my life. It's changing every other aspect of how I run my life. And so in his case, that meant generosity and restitution. Making right what he had done wrong and being generous with what he had. Which Zacchaeus didn't do in a vacuum. He didn't just kind of stumble into this idea. It actually falls in line with what John the Baptist was calling anybody who wanted to join in what God was doing, asked people to do. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus. And he came out in the wilderness. He was a man who was wild. He was out of the box. And he would call people. He would challenge people. And people were so impacted by his words, they would end up asking him. Because he would say, listen, Messiah is coming. We need to get ready for him. And people would ask him the question, what should we do? And this is well beyond before Jesus started his ministry. But we're told in Luke 3, and I put this passage just right next to that passage we're looking at. And we're told in verse 10 that the crowds asked him, being John the Baptist, what then shall we do? And he answered, and this is, this is John's way of saying, here are the implications of a faith in God. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Be generous, is what he said. You want to line up with what God is doing? Live a generous way. And then look who's called out. Verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. That is to say, I'm joining up with God. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Don't extort. Do you, you know what he didn't say? Stop collecting taxes. Which would have been nice, you know. <laughs> but what does he say? Do your job. You have some authority. Carry it out justly. Do your job justly. And then soldiers asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. Don't abuse your power. Be content. So John basically tells this crowd, three things will demonstrate an internal change. You get this. You understand what's going on. If you, your life becomes generous, if your life becomes characterized by carrying itself out in a way that is just, and if in your life you find yourself discovering contentment. You don't, you don't grasp for what is beyond you. It's okay. You're content with what you have. Those three things will, will demonstrate what is going on in your heart. And Jesus sees this. He hears Zacchaeus say this. And it's almost as if Jesus then, then he rejoices. And he goes in verse 9. He says, Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house since you also. He also is a son of Abraham. He's not just of the lineage of Abraham, but he has Abraham's faith. 
And then he turns and he says, the son of man, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. It's almost as if Jesus is responding to the grumbling crowd. And upon hearing, what is he rejoicing over? He's rejoicing over the fruit of what's going on within Zacchaeus. He's rejoicing over the changed external evidence of a life made right with God. And he's saying, Zacchaeus, you got it. You got it. You understand. And then almost in his own way, he tur- I just imagine Jesus turning. This is why I came. This is why I hang out with sinners. I'm seeking and saving them. Any who are lost, I'm wanting to find them. This is why. You see, I don't know about you, but I can't help but love Jesus for the way he carried himself. He didn't bow to pressure and he didn't condone. He still challenged and he called us up. He calls Zacchaeus to a whole nother level, the overflowing life. And so what does this have for us? Um, just in the moments we have left, I'd like us to consider a couple things. Firstly, I think this shows us that Christian generosity begins when we seek the one who has been inviting himself into our lives. Uh, this whole thing began because Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. It began because, and Luke was careful to note that a wealthy man was so determined to see Jesus that what did he do? He ended up climbing a tree to get a glimpse. He humbled himself, didn't he? And he risked seeming undignified to see Jesus. He didn't let his wealth or his sense, the trappings of it, prevent him. He also, you know what? You know what this also shows me about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, he didn't give in to the victim mentality Did he deserve some of it because of what he had done? Sure. But he didn't let the rejection of the people stop him from seeking Jesus out. He proactively sought him out. And what he discovered is that what? He was seeking out Jesus without knowing that Jesus was seeking him out as well. And You know, for those of us who are exploring faith in God, so many times this is what it's like. We might be in a season where we're seeking something. Where we might have some questions. We might be at a crossroads or in a season of pain. We might be in a season in which we find ourselves a little bit more open. We're wondering, is there more to life than this? We might be finding ourselves in a place of frustration or even anger and something inside of us is bothered and we are pressing in. And so we, even right now, might be just wondering. I I haven't found the answer yet. Could this have one? And what we will discover, I think, if we are sincere and earnest in our seeking, is that that very desire for more That very desire to want an answer, to find something of substance and purpose and meaning, 
That is actually, it, it might be God himself knocking on the door of our heart, saying, hey, can we have a meal? Can we dialogue? Can we talk? And we will find ourselves pleasantly surprised that we are seeking the one who has been seeking us. And it's in that place we discover how hospitable. See, Jesus, you know what hospitality is? The ability to welcome. There was no one more hospitable than he. He makes God approachable. And it is worth investigating not just his words, but who he was and is. If that's the case, you know, for those of us, that's just for us to consider if we are exploring. For those of us who have come to a point where we are convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, you know, we have received such hospitality from him in the courts of God. It reminds me, hospitality is a universal language of generosity. It it really is. It, It knows no boundaries. It really doesn't. I I remember when I was young, my parents decided uh, to take me to El Salvador, which is where they were from. I was around eight or nine years old. El Salvador found itself on the tail end of a decade-long war, civil war. I remember going there and seeing soldiers in every corner, sandbags piled up at night, hearing all kinds of stuff that now I remember looking back, it was warfare, active. Tension was in the air. There was a sense of of fear. There was a sense of something going on at all times. But even in in that atmosphere, I remember this. I remember being impacted. I think it will stay with me the rest of my life. But I remember experiencing something. In that, even in that poverty, it did not prevent anyone from demonstrating hospitality to another. I remember it. And this has been said by people who have experienced this in other nations, of, in other environments of poverty. That there's something about it that humble, without pretentiousness, without any kind of, um, you know, the kind of things that we're used to in a wealthy society, that humble hospitality is sometimes the best kind. And I remember experiencing that. And I remember with what joy it was given. I remember that because it also, I, I was reminded of it when we took our teens over to Mexico and we had a meal with people who decided that out of their poverty, they decided to welcome us in. And we went to serve and we found ourselves being served. And I remember just experiencing just how beautiful that was. How moved we all were by that. It reminds me of this passage that Paul called the Romans to. He, he told them, I asked him to put this up there. He told them, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Which is his way of saying, give to your local body. And seek, and look at this, seek to show hospitality. You know what Paul is saying? We who have received such an embrace from Jesus, we who are the church, are to show each other hospitality. This mark is what impacted the first century Roman Empire. 
the church, the church, by the way, is not this building. The church is us. And in a society such as ours that is fast-paced, always on the move, to be hospitable is one of the greatest gifts we can give each other and those around us. We are supposed to be the most hospitable people others come in contact with. That is where generosity begins, when we seek the one who is seeking us constantly. If that's the case, then Jesus' presence in our lives will also do something else. It will cause internal tension. It will. It will cause internal tension with regards to our time, our resources, and our pursuits. I wish it wasn't so. I wish I could say that every time I came to read his word or I come to Jesus, that I I feel so like, yes. But sometimes I actually end up feeling troubled. How about you? And when we read his word honestly, and we allow his word to interact with us in an earnest way, you know what ends up happening? It ends up sometimes, sometimes, it ends up bothering us. It ends up... um, Digging into areas in our lives, it ends up causing a, a dissonance within, a, a not, not a sense of peace, but an unsettledness within us. It ends up calling things out of us that stirs a discontent. It ends up prodding and prying into the inner depths of our soul. And it ends up moving in such a way that is altogether different than what we're used to. Because what it doesn't do, what Jesus does not do, is he doesn't do that in a way that causes us to be ashamed. And he doesn't do it in a way that causes us to feel condemned. Because he doesn't condemn. He challenges us and he speaks into our lives in a way that is, I will say, even scarier than that. Because if it was shame-filled, it's so easy to write, you know, stop judging me. Just, you don't know. You don't understand. But you know what Jesus does? He gives us something we're not used to. He gives us a gracious confrontation. He gives us something that is far more impactful. I will, he says to Zacchaeus, I will relate with you. No preconditions. Let's have a relationship. But let's have an honest conversation. Our relationship is not in danger but let's talk honestly with one another. And that, see, Zacchaeus didn't come out of this as a man ashamed. I, 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 we don't know exactly what was said in that conversation, but I, I think I can uh, say with high degrees of confidence, Jesus didn't shame Zacchaeus into what he did. He didn't condemn him. It, listen, the group around him and maybe his own inner thoughts did that well enough. And Jesus did something far more life-giving. Now, historically, in our Christian faith, if that disturbance is there within us, that has historically been called conviction. And if that is the case, if we're in that place, wisdom would tell us to pay attention. Because it's there, in that conviction, that actually God, through His Spirit, might be trying to create a wellspring of new life to emerge. 
in that place of so exactingly pointing something out in our lives, graciously, lovingly, what he is actually doing is plumbing the depths of our soul to create something new to emerge. And if we remain in the conversation long enough and we allow him to challenge us, to speak to us, well, we're going to find ourselves inspired because Christian generosity, and this is our final thought, Christian generosity flows from a heart that is inspired by God's generosity. It is never something compelled on us. It is something drawn out of us. It is something that is bubbling within us. Why? Because we come to recognize how much we have received. What did Jesus say he came to do? I came to seek and to save the lost. What was the one thing Zacchaeus couldn't pay for? Being found. He couldn't do it. No matter how much he tried, only Jesus could find him. The, 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 the gift of being found. The gift of being told, this is why, Zacchaeus, you're created. This is what you were meant for. The gift of being called up out of something. See, I'm convinced that Jesus in that conversation, he didn't shame him or condemn him. What did he do? He called Zacchaeus up. You have something in your heart you know you want to do. Now it's time to do it, Zacchaeus. This is who you're meant to be. Now it's time to do it. God is wanting you in his family. Yes. But now it's time for you to step into who you're supposed to be. And that, Zacchaeus received what he could never earn. And you know what he discovered? He had something to give. Now in his case, he had much to give. But to those of us, if, if we find ourselves ever touched by the grace of God, you know what we discover? We discover that he gives us what we could never pay for. And then in our hand, we discover there is something all of us can give. Not one of us is without something we can give. And that gift of discovering, wow, you want to be generous through me? Well, that makes us ask the question, how far will we open this spigot? How far will we open and let it flow? May we be ones who step in courageously to what is already happening within us. And may we experiencing, experience the joy that comes with it. In a minute, we're going to receive our time of giving and our closing song. But I just want to pray, ask for his blessing, and um, we'll move in together. So, Lord, I thank you. I thank you, God, that you are the God who seeks us out. That you are the God who welcomes us in. You are the God who gives. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, give us the ability to hear perhaps what this might look like in our own lives. Would you sustain a flow through us that reflects your heart to us? I pray that you would do that, that you would be a wellspring within us, 
and that you would bless not just our lives, but many lives through us. We ask for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.